Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 72nd, wow, 72nd episodes of the Nauticast entitled Bride of Fire, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 10, in which an exiled widow teenager stranded in a wasteland is reborn as the mother of dragons. Now that's how you end a book. And wow, I can't believe we are ending our first book on this Nauticast journey just a, a hair short of 20 months after we started our, our little journey together. It's been a great year and a half. I was so looking forward to doing this podcast with you when you first approached me with the idea, and I've had even more fun doing it than I expected to. And yeah, this really is how you end a book. As we said last week, when we did Catalan 11 with Stephen Atwell, it, one of the many reasons this book did so well and spawned such a successful series is just the knockout punch it leaves you with at the end, even more than Rob becoming king in the north or Tyrion becoming the new hand of the king or Jon going beyond the wall. This is the, this is the chapter that leaves you going, wow. Where is the next book? Shut up and take my money. I need it in my hands immediately. You need to see where this goes because this chapter, it, it just completely our, changes our understanding of what the story is about and where it's going. As we've gotten closer to this chapter, I've seen a lot of people say online, and this is a sentiment I've heard before, that this is the chapter where A Song of Ice and Fire really started feeling like fantasy to people and where it, it felt more than you know, kind of medieval historical fiction pastiche with magic sprinkled around the edges as it's been for most of the book. This is where it really takes center stage and where George is saying the the more sorcerous, transcendent, metaphysical side of the series. I'm going to integrate that with all the other parts and that fusion is what's going to drive the story going forward. It's just so incredibly powerful to read even now, even after so many times through it because it's just that perfectly constructed. You said it, man. Well, that's is the not a cast. No, I'm kidding. No, this is that's, that's brilliantly said. I think it's it's something that really appeals to me because I'm not like as I've said many many times, I'm not a fantasy reader necessarily. In fact, a Song of Ice and Fire has essentially been my window into my limited fantasy experience in my adulthood. So it's been fun doing this with you, and it's fun doing this chapter because yeah, this this chapter really is uh it, it's fucking bonkers, man. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that momentarily. Uh, but before we do that, as always, this episode this week is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warn of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Arch Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, and Lady Zena Valyria. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winslow sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Before we get to our question this week, we wanted to share just a lovely email we received from Lady Sarah C., a poor fellow patron. Good day, Jeff and Emmett. I am not sure that I can adequately convey how grateful I am in several respects for your podcast, but I will attempt to. I voluntarily left a job in December, despite being well compensated, because the atmosphere was toxic and negative. I spent 10 years in the legal industry and 10 years in the energy industry. I'm not sure what's next, but I decided to take a hiatus from being a worker bee in order to decompress and get some much-needed rest. Though some may wish the two of you would disagree and argue more, <laughs> I am deeply appreciative of your mutually respectful discourse. Even when your opinions differ, you give each other time and space to express yourselves. You're willing to listen, you're open to learn. 
Your friendship is a positive model for the way we should treat one another and the respect we should afford one another. Thank you for that. I had never seen Game of Thrones until this January, when I binge-watched the first seven seasons. I enjoyed it so much that I bought the A Song of Ice and Fire books. A friend suggested your, Nada, podcast, and I became instantly <laughs> hooked. I listened to each chapter episode as I read Game of Thrones, which is a real treat. I am now reading Clash of Kings and can't wait to hear your insights. My stepfather of almost 30 years passed away in April, so I decided to extend my worker bee hiatus so that I can truly be there for my mom as she goes through this challenging time. I live in Massachusetts, but I drive up to New Hampshire several times a week to see her. Your podcasts have been like a bright, warm light, keeping me company on those drives. Thank you for creating such a pleasant diversion. Alas, of all the content you've created, I only have a few Patreon episodes left to listen to, so I eagerly look forward to your future content. You both seem like such authentically kind, good people. Your insight into the world George created is always thought-provoking and artfully conveyed. I feel so fortunate to be part of the family of fans who have cultivated a special bond in our shared enjoyment of George's universe. Your grateful Patreon, Lady Sarah of the North. By the way... Today is my 46th name day. In the early days, you would often share fan feedback at the beginning of your episodes, which I enjoyed hearing. Even the Robert Baratheon-esque comment that you're very feminine, which incidentally you are not. You are just the right balance of masculine and feminine that every man should strive towards. Amen, brothers. Well, thank you, Lady Sarah, so much. That's just a, a wonderful, sweet letter. We're so sorry to hear about your loss. Um, we're so happy to have contributed in, in any way to helping you work through a transitional and, and tough period in your life. As, as much as we love talking about A Song of Ice and Fire just for the sake of A Song of Ice and Fire, I think any content creator strives to just be a useful distraction for people too, a way of, of grounding people and giving them just something enjoying to talk to and a, a space to be, to be calm and feel like you have friends when the world is spinning out of control. And the, you know the fact that we can do that in any way for people is is just so moving. So and we're 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 super looking forward to Clash of Kings as well. So thank you so much for saying such nice things about our podcast, and we will endeavor to elevate our, our combative discourse in the most respectful way possible when we get to Clash of Kings. Uh, we we will have a few moments where we'll disagree in Clash. I think, especially over a certain. Um totally justifiable killing that ha occurs midway through a clash of kings but in, in all seriousness the sarah that's awesome that you sent this email our way it's very sweet of us it's it kind of reached me i think i was i think i read it, it was it was probably like one or two in the morning i was working on this, this episode actually and i read it and i was like god that's like that's awesome like i i'm just glad that we're able to provide like something positive and beneficial our question this week comes from lord travis our master of ships and warden of the waves on our aforementioned small council and he asks I took Miri's When the Sun Rises in the West and Sets in the East comments more as narrative poetry than prophecy. Like you said, it's almost that she was saying it's impossible. But within that arrogance, does Miri sow the seeds of her own destruction? She tried to prevent the stallion who mounts the world, and as she said, as it relates to Drogo and Rego, but she pushed Danny into the role and the fulfillment of the prophecy. Additionally, I think her attitude about having defeated Danny also backfired as things are like to do in A Song of Ice and Fire in general. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you so much, Lord Travis. And what do you think about that, Jeff? Obviously, Miri is kind of going to war with the prophetic heritage of these figures as she sees it. But is, is she wholly successful? How does that really work out? George has cited this story from the War of the Roses about this guy who had heard that who had been prophesied that he was going to die within sight of this town. So his entire life, he avoided this town, and then he ends up dying. But it's in at this bar, this inn, which has a sign for the town itself. So that's how the prophecy was fulfilled here. So when I think we were talking about prophecy, we're talking about how we attempt to interdict it and attempt to prevent it from happening. And that it just typically doesn't work out. I think like the biggest one is Cersei's attempt to 
and intersect or, or, or to prevent the prophecy of the one who is younger, more beautiful, who will cast you down from occurring in a feast for crows when she thinks she's arresting Marjorie when it's more likely to be a character like Ariane or potentially Daenerys Targaryen uh, in The Wind's Winter. So I, I think Miri does sow the seeds of her own destruction. I think not just her own destruction, but the destruction of the world. Because when in Danny 9, she talks specifically about how now Rago won't trample any cities to the ground. No, Now there won't be any raped women and dead children and things like that. Well, that actually ends up spawning Daenerys into becoming the magical, prophetic figure of destiny that we're going to be talking about extensively in this episode. And that figure is going to be acting in a quite violent manner come the winds of winter, Quite likely even more violent come a dream of spring if you accept the end state for Daenerys Targaryen that we found in season eight, which I do with some minor to medium reservations, I think is probably the best way to put it. Um, I, I think that's what she ends up doing is creating a Rego type figure in the form of Daenerys Targaryen, except for in this case, Rego would have been in charge of a Kalasar who would have done terrible, potentially done terrible, horrible things. But instead, she created... But instead, she creates Daenerys Targaryen, who's the mother of dragons, who does terrible, horrible things with three motherfucking dragons. So I think that's a little bit of a an elevation. It makes it much, much worse, ultimately. What do you think, Evan? As we've said before, the unreliable and mysterious nature of prophecy is not meant to make either the characters or the audience just dismiss and ignore prophecy and say it's all bunk. The, the problem comes in when characters think they have this perfect understanding of prophecy and they can control it and wield it to serve their own ends. So it, it's not... That Miri Mazdor is is wrong to try to intercede and stop the great destruction of the world under the hooves of the stallion. It's that she has this serene assumption that she knows exactly who the stallion is and exactly what's going to happen. And she's plotted this all out and the great shepherd is 100% behind her. And characters who think like that in A Song of Ice and Fire tend to be wrong. I mean, it's as we've said before, there's, there's parallel to Melisandre here, assuring Stannis that this is an easy ethical choice. And of course, you can sacrifice Edric Storm to bring back the dragons to save the world. It's just a clean equation. Nothing should trouble you about that whatsoever. You have Robert, of course, creating the Dothraki invasion in this storyline that he was trying to forestall with the attack on Danny. So I think, yeah, I think it, it definitely rebounds on Miri in a way that I think calls into question not so much her politics, because I think her politics in isolation are largely admirable, but she, how she infuses her politics into prophecy i think it's that relationship between the politics and the magic where i think you can start to see george complicating miri's argument i think it's a great point i think it does complicate the argument about who miri mazdor is and it does complicate what she's doing does she end up creating a larger monster than the one she was attempting to prevent it's it's these kind of what if questions are impossible to answer within the narrative itself, although it does make some interesting alternate universes for those of you who are more interested in that kind of fan fiction type stuff. So if you have those types of thoughts, go ahead and write them out in an AU fan fiction. I was reading one, a fan fiction today about Stannis Baratheon as a uh, fantasy football commissioner. So it's been uh, – <laughs> Travis has been answering – has been asking many questions. We really appreciate all the questions you've been asking, sir. And if you guys have not already listened to it, his podcast, which is the Planetos podcast, they actually had Lord Michael. War of the West and the Kraken's Bane on recently as a guest in which he was talking about Sir Hyle Hunt and, and posed a really fascinating Hyle Hunt theory, which I'm not going to spoil here because you need to go listen to the Planetos podcast episode. 
So we just want to remind folks that it will be a two-week break between the recording of this episode and our next episode. Our next episode will be coming out on the 5th of August, and that will start a Clash of Kings, which is, you know, kind of an emotional moment, finishing a Game of Thrones, starting a Clash of Kings. But if you guys are patrons, we will have our next Patreon-only episode available for all $5 above patrons coming out starting on the 27th, but for all $5 above patrons, it'll be coming out on the 29th itself. So thank you very much for questions from our patrons at the $10 above level, and we will look forward to starting a clash of kings with you guys very very soon for sure our patreon episode that jeff alluded to this month is going to be looking back on a game of thrones and seeing how our opinions about and relationship to book one has changed as we've gone through it over the past the course year and a half and yeah that we're going to come back hard with the prologue to a clash of kings that i'm going to call it now that's going to be our longest episode to date and it's not going to be even close no it's going to be long 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 i'm thinking like five six seven hours yeah whatever at least at least at least All right. So, again, thanks for the questions. And we are on to the synopsis, our final synopsis for Game of Thrones. And here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Daenerys 10. The chants of King of the North fade into black, and he'd be forgiven when you read for the first time, thinking that the end credits are coming. Instead, the ultimate chapter of A Game of Thrones opens to Targaryen colors, a red, dead land, bereft of water, yeah, it's fire and blood, baby, with Daenerys Targaryen standing in the midst of it. Danny's Dothraki gather firewood, brown grass, and brush, hacking limbs off trees and shaving the bark down to mend together with the grass. Ricaro gets a stallion. Ago gives it an apple and then buries his axe between his eyes. All the while, Miri Mazdor watches, disquieted. It is not enough to kill a horse, Miri tells Danny. By itself, the blood is nothing. You do not have the words to make a spell, nor the wisdom to find them. Do you think blood magic is a game for children? Besides, Meiji only means wise in Lazarine, and Danny is just an ignorant, arrogant child. It's not going to work whatever you're planning, unless you free Miri, of course. She'll help. She's always so very helpful. I am tired of the Meiji's brain, Danny told Jogo. Jogo then whips the shit out of Miri, and she shuts the fuck up. Wow. The Dothraki build a pyre of logs, trunks from smaller trees, and branches over the corpse of the horse, laying wood east to west and north to south. Then they get all of Drogo's treasures and pile and put them in a pile atop the pyre. Drogo's saddles, harnesses, whips, arax, a dragon bone, bow, everything must go, except, you know, the things that Danny has. She's keeping them. A layer of grass and brush go over the top of the treasures, and the pyre is almost complete. And it's in that moment that Jorah Mormont returns from probably submitting his latest Gamergate essay. He addresses Danny as princess and gets an immediately and gets an immediate corrective from her. Viserys is dead, bro. She ain't a princess anymore. My Queen, then. My sword that was Viserys's is yours, Daenerys, and my heart as well, that never belonged to your brother. I am only a knight, and I have nothing to offer you but exile. But I beg you, hear me. Let Caldrogo go. And what would Jorah offer Danny? Oh, himself, and a sweet vacation in Giti, Karth, the Jade Sea, and Ashai. Jorah knows what Danny intends to do, and he tells her not to do that. Come visit my bone mountain. Uh, come visit the bone mountains with me. I must. You do not understand. Jorah thinks he understands, talking about how Danny loved Drogo. He loved his lady Lynesse once too, but don't think to ask him to stand aside while she immolates herself. Danny is a little surprised. She's not going to burn. What Jorah asks her to swear it, Danny you know, swears it, speaking the common tongue of Westeros, the kingdom that belonged to her by rights. Another layer goes over top the platform of thin, interwoven branches and dry leaves and twigs. Those went north to south, from ice to fire. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Song of Ice and Fire, dry leaves and twigs. Kind of. On top of them went soft cushions and Danny's sleeping silks. 
By the time they're done, the sun is low in the sky, and Danny gathers the last Dothraki left around her, about one hundred in total. You will be my Kalasar. I see the faces of slaves. I free you. Take off your collars. Go if you wish. No one shall harm you. If you stay, it will be as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. Everyone just sort of stares at Danny, thinking this is some sort of trick. It's not, but you can kind of understand their suspicion. Danny sees that there's only children, women, and the elderly that are left with her. I was a child yesterday. Today I am a woman. Tomorrow I will be old. To each of you, I say, give me your hands and your hearts, and there will always be a place for you. She then tries to offer gifts to her cause. She tries to give Jogo a silver-handled whip, Ago the dragonbone bow, and Ricaro a great arak. All of these men refuse their gifts or take them flummoxed by this break in tradition. It is not to threat it is not within Dothraki tradition for her cause to stay on with her beyond any farther than returning her to Vazdothrak. Finally, she turns to Sir Jorah Bormont, tells him that he doesn't get a sweet ass gift, but one day he's going to have a Valyrian steel blade. Do you know what Valyrian steel is, Jorah? Ever felt one of those swords before? Do you miss Longclaw, Jorah? <clears throat> Anyways, Jorah, Danny wants Jorah's oath, and he says it's hers. Whatever may come. Danny plans to hold him to that oath, which, uh, yeah, we'll see how that one plays out in Storm Swords. Jorah will also become the first knight of Danny's Queensguard. Danny goes back into her tent, and Danny notices all the Dothraki looking at her like she's mad. Maybe she was. She'd known soon enough. If I look back, I am lost. Inside the tent, Danny gets into a scalding hot bath. She likes the heat, though, and the water is scented with oil. Doria washes her hair, and Danny feels the heat of the water soaking into the soreness in her thighs. She floats in the water. When clean, Danny's handmaids fan her dry, <laughs> guess leadership has its perks, brush her hair, and then anoint her with oil all over the place, including the nether regions. Now dressed in the finest priestess garb available, Danny dresses Drogo for the sacrifice. She washes his body, oils his hair, running her fingers through his uncut hair for the last time. She smells his hair, and it smells of grass, earth, smoke, horses, and semen. Delicious. Forgive me, son of my life. Forgive me for all that I have done and all I must do. I paid the price, my star, but it was too high. Too high. Danny braids Drogo's hair, puts the silver rings on, and puts the bells into his hair. She gets him into his horsehair leggings, high boots, and then she gets his gold and silver medallions around his waist. Finally, she puts his favorite faded leather vest over his scarred chest. With Drogo dressed, Danny gets into some loose-fitting clothing, high boots, and a vest as the sun goes down. Ago and Jogo carry Drogo from the tent to the funeral pyre with Danny trailing behind them. They place the body of the giant call onto the cushions and silks with his head facing to the northeast, to the Mother of Mountains. Then Danny orders po- then Danny orders oil poured over the top of the pyre until everything is drenched. Bring my eggs. Joris tries to stop her, suggesting that they could sell the eggs and purchase the ship back to the Free Cities, but the eggs are not Danny's to sell. Danny climbs the pyre, placing the eggs around Drogo's body. She kisses him one last time, tasting the oil on his lips, and notices Miri Ma's door as she climbs off the pyre. You are mad, Mary Mazdor says. Is it so far from madness to wisdom? Sir Jorah, take this Magian binder to the pyre. Jorah protests, but Dana reminds him that he swore to obey her, so he and Ricaro drag Miri to the pyre, staking her down and around the treasures. Danny then pours oil all over Miri Mazdor's head because don't fuck with the Khaleesi, and then she says, I thank you, Miri Mazdor, for the lessons you have taught me. Miri says she ain't going to scream, but Danny says, yeah, bitch, you're going to scream. Regardless, she's not interested in Miri Mazdor's screams as much as her life. Only death can pay for life. Again, Miri Mazdor gets good and fucking quiet, and Danny notices that her earlier contempt is gone. 
Then they watched the setting sun and looked for the first star. George, via Daenerys' thoughts, provides some world-building about the Thraki funeral customs then. When calls die, their horses are killed with them so that the call can ride into the nightlands. The bodies of the call and the horse and are burned in the night so that the call can ride his fire horse into the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter a star will shine in the darkness. I, I guess, Emmett, what George is saying here is that Dothraki funeral rites are metal as fuck, because hashtag analysis. Jogo sees the first light in the night, but it ain't a star. It's our red comet burning low and red in the east. Blood red, of course. Fire red, too, because sure. And it's a dragon's tail, because, uh, why not? Danny thinks this is an incredibly strong sign, and she ain't exactly wrong. She ain't wrong at all, actually. Danny grabs a torch and throws it onto the pyre, and the oil ignites. And the oil ignites the grass and brush. Fire blasts into the night sky as heat puffs at Danny's face, soft and sudden as a lover's breath. Targaryen's man, wow! But a moment later, it was too hot to handle, and Danny takes a step back. Mary Mazdor sings in a shrill, ululating voice as flames whirl and writhe, racing up the platform towards Drogo. The fire grows so hot that Danny thinks the air is liquefying from the heat. Wow. The flames rush over Miri Ma's door and her singing grows loud and shrill. She starts gasping and her voice becomes a wail and full of agony. Yikes. Wow. This is very intense. The fire reaches Drogo and his clothes go up in flames. Smoke curls around Drogo's body and Danny nearly rushes to Drogo, wanting to beg his forgiveness and have sex with him one last time, letting the fire melt the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever. And that is some stark-ass imagery. But then Danny smells the burning flesh, thinking it doesn't smell any different than horse flesh in a fire. And then the pyre roars like a giant beast, overwhelming Miri Mazdor's screams. Smoke billows and grows. The Dothraki back away. Flames unfurl banners in a hellacious wind. Logs hiss, crack. Cinders rise on smoke into the air. The heat beat at the air with great red wings, driving the Dothraki back, driving off even Mormont. But Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon, and the fire was in her. Danny had known the truth all along. She steps towards the flames. The brazier that she had lit way back in Daenerys' sixth chapter wasn't hot enough. The flames hot and high, they danced lovely like the dancers did at her wedding back in Daenerys too. Danny spreads her arms to the fire. This is a wedding too. The god's wife thought her a child, but children grow and children learn. Danny takes another step forward, feeling the heat in the sand itself. Sweat pours off her body. Jorah shouts at her, but none of that shit matters. Only the flames matter. Danny looks deep in the fire, seeing much and more. A yellow sorcerer, crimson fire lions, great yellow serpents, unicorns, fish, foxes, monsters, wolves, bright birds, flowering trees, a horse, a great gray stallion. And Danny thinks that this great gray stallion is Drogo's horse. She urges Drogo to mount and ride in her thoughts. Danny's vest smolders and she shrugs it off. The leather bursts into flames as she steps towards the fire again. Milk flows from her swollen and red nipples. Now, she thought. And for an instant, she glimpsed Kyle Drogo before her, mounted on a smoky stallion, a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled, and the whip staked down at the pyre, hissing. A thunderclap of cracks shatters around her as the pyre shifts and begins to collapse. Burning wood slides down around Danny as she showered with ash and burning cinders. And something else came crashing down, bouncing and rolling to land at her feet. A chunk of cur- wait a minute, a chunk of a chunk of, a chunk of curved rock, pale and veined with gold, broken and smoking. Okay, is this a cracked dragon egg? How, how have I never caught that shit before? Oh my god! Danny hears screams and shouting, wonder and shouting and wonder. And Danny reminds herself that only death can pay for life. Another crack, and yeah, I think I finally understand what all this cracking is around. Holy shit! It's only taking me umpteen, umpteen times to read these books. We'll get to this. Dothraki shout and scream behind her. Jorah curses and calls her name. No, she wanted to shout at him. No, my good knight, do not fear for me. The fire is mine. 
I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. Don't you see? Don't you see? A belch of flame blows 30 feet into the air, the pyre falling down around her. Unafraid, Danny stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. When the ground cools enough, Jorah Mormont finds Danny amidst the ashes and blackened logs. Danny is naked, blackened with soot, her clothes and ashes, her hair burned off. But she was unhurt. But something or somethings move around her. The cream and gold dragon was suckling at her left breast, the green and bronze at the right. Her arms cradled them close. The blacks and scarlet beast was draped across her shoulders, its long, sinuous neck coiled around her chin. Jorah falls to his knees. Her cause come next, laying their arrows at Danny's feet. Blood of my blood, they whisper, Sayer shouted her. Then her handmaids come, then doth, then the Dothraki men and women. Danny knew that they were hers forever, as they had never been Drogos. And, Emmett, you get the honors, man. This is our final synopsis for this, and I know that you're a huge fan of all the magic quotient in A Song of Ice and Fire. And can you read the final paragraph of A Game of Thrones in Danny's final chapter? You've more than fucking earned it. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils. The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so good. I just, uh, it always hits me emotionally the same way that King in the North does for sure. And uh, that is Game of Thrones Daenerys 10. And that's the end of a Game of Thrones, the book for the Nauticast podcast. And, you know, I'm stunned, shaking that we're here now. 72 chapters, 72 episodes. Well, lots more, actually, if you count the, you know, our Thrones reviews or Patreon episodes and our one holiday special we did with Joanna Robinson. But I'm also, like, stunned that there are things for me still to discover in this 23-year-old chapter, right? I mean, one that I've read many, many times before. I mean, it's a weird, weird chapter. So freaking weird. And, but it's at the same time, it's spellbinding, it's amazing, it's brilliantly written. But it's that weirdness about this chapter that really makes it, that kind of distinguishes it from a lot of the other magical chapters in, in, in the fantasy genre. And granted, like I said before, I'm not huge into fantasy itself, but I've read enough to know that this is a cut above the rest. You know, magic isn't cool unless it's fucked up and weird. And here we are in the year of our Lord 2019. I'm still kind of slack-jawed this chapter and how George does it. So what did you think about this chapter, Evan? So I'm not an especially religious person. When I talked about my relationship to Judaism before when we were talking about season eight, it was almost entirely in terms of culture and history. But I have spiritual yearnings like anyone else. And I think you can find that catharsis in God. You can find it in nature. You can find it in family. I think all of those are equally viable paths to becoming a whole person who can do others good, which is the whole point of any of that. And for me, spiritual catharsis comes through most strongly in art. My favorite books and, and movies and museum pieces are those that awake something in me that direct appeals to divine authority just never has. And that's awe, the true sensation of the sublime. And there are few better examples of that than a Game of Thrones Daenerys 10. And look, there may have been one or two chapters I enjoyed more on this reread of book one that I just have more of like a personal relationship to. But Danny 10, this is the one that just burns itself into you forever. Like all these late Danny chapters, as we said before, discussing Danny 8 and then Danny 9 with Eliana from Girls Gone Canon, this is an intimidating one to analyze, in part because it's been discussed by so many for so long, as you said, in part just because of the sheer elevated quality of the writing. It's like talking about, you know, have you heard this this new symphony this fellow Beethoven came up with? I like this ode to joy. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, we're like talking about Shakespeare or 
I don't know, Jaws? Like, how do, how do you elaborate on just this is perfect? And to a certain extent, that's all we can say about this chapter, but that's in part because of just the reverence it inspires from everyone who's read it. It's a before and after moment in terms of your relationship to the story. So we, we have kind of a responsibility to do this one right because it's sacred ground. You're right about that. I mean, I, I was so intimidated by analyzing this chapter that I actually went back and read all of Danny's Game of Thrones chapters before I started writing the synopsis and before I started doing some more of the deeper of the work in this chapter. Because it, you're right, this is a very intimidating chapter. And the reason why it's so intimidating is because of how perfect it is. I mean, it's, you know, I, I joke around about how well Martin writes and like, oh, I'm not jealous at all about his writing. But like, yeah, I'm really super jealous that he can get away with doing this and do this so well. And, you know, something that kind of strikes me too is that to get to this moment in, in writing, it took George something like five years of writing a Game of Thrones book. Started in 91, kind of abandoned it for a year and a half or so, came back to it in 93 and just kind of wrote like the wind from 93 to 96. So four to five years of some pretty heavy writing of, of A Song of Ice and Fire and of, of A Game of Thrones. I, I imagine this chapter was one of those ones that took a lot of drafting to to get around to writing and to get around to perfecting because George is a perfectionist as a writer, as many folks know, and there's no more perfect chapter in this chapter. But I mean, I was, I was struck though too, like you were talking about your relationship with Judaism, it kind of gins something up in me from my Protestant Sunday school heritage, and recollections of the elaborate rituals behind the sacrifices made in the desert tabernacle when the Jews were in, or the Israelites right at that point, because they weren't the Jews until the, the 10 tribes of, northern tribes of Israel fell away. And when the Israelites were in the Sinai and Moses, and they were performing the sacrifices in the tabernacle, and then later in the Solomonic temple, you know, you have to select a spotless lamb, it needs to be dressed in a specific way, only the high priest can enter, can enter the inner sanctum, only the high priest could eat the specific bread. I can't remember the actual bread was called now. It's been you know 25 years since Sunday school for me. But then after that, the sacrifice is done, the deed is done, you move on, your sins have been forgiven. You know, it strikes me how vivid the imagery is, is in the buildup of this chapter of Danny walking into the flames, calling to her children, how sparse the writing gets immediately after. I think it's really, really cool. It's really, really great writing. You know, the vividness is in the magic ritual. The fact telling isn't dry, but it's to the point. I guess what I'm trying to say is that George is really emotionally invested in the rituals that birth the dragons. And when they're born, we are onto them now as something more than magic. They're physical beings. They are emerging into the world, wondrous and terrible, and here to do some really interesting plot work for Danny, but also really interesting identity work for Danny's character, too. I think you picked the perfect term, wondrous and terrible. That ties into what Lazy Leo terms this entire era in the prologue to A Feast for Crows, the age of wonder and terror. And that chapter starts right off with someone mentioning the dragons because no one repre no nothing represents that era more than the dragons and specifically their their birth their reawakening just sums up this entire era. But at the same time, like you say, George is doing a lot of different things well in this chapter and he's writing in a lot of different ways. And I think understanding why this chapter is aged so well and continues to resonate as much as it does, you have to dig into all those different layers. So talking about the tone, you have these kind of contrasting tones of the, like this this chapter is on one hand like a grounded scavenger hunt like Danny has this list of things for everyone to get and then it transforms into this psychedelic blood magic ritual and you find the connective tissue between the two Danny 10 feels very similar to Danny 8 in that way they both start small with these environmental details like Danny 8 it's like the sweat and the blood flies and just like the the, the trudging through this brown inhospitable land and then you, George builds gradually to the sorcerer's fireworks and Danny tends the same way. Danny 9, interestingly, kind of inverts that pacing. As we were saying with Eliana, it starts with a trippy nightmare and with Rago's monstrous form, and then it ends with Danny and Jogo alone. So it kind of has this decrescendo throughout the course of the chapter, Danny 9, and then this is another crescendo opening back up. 
So you have the chapter that it focuses first on just gathering ingredients. You got Drogo, you got all his possessions, although not Danny's, which is an early sign of the chapter that she's kind of taken over in her own right and she's not just going out in a kamikaze blaze of glory. You've got Miri Mazdor that Danny kind of uses as an ingredient, so to speak, in the ritual. You got lots of wood, you got lots of oil, you have yet another poor horse. The horses really just cannot catch a break in this Kalasar at the end of a Game of Thrones. There's just no good options for them. George is going into a lot of specifics here. Like, he's not hand-waving this part at all. He's like, he wants to ground the ritual in our mind's eye to get us to see all these components, as he did with the sweat and the blood flies and so on in Danny 8. In part, that's just like solid establishing shots for a set piece. He wants you to have it visually in your mind so you keep the visuals when the, when the fire ramps up and you have that, that image in your mind. But it's also to firmly cement the mundane aspects of this chapter, just like wood, oil, horse. So the transition into unabashed magic is super effective. Like you feel... You feel present in this grounded world, which makes you feel that the world is spinning out of the control along with the characters when the magic starts. Danny 10 is, is all about that tipping point, right? Where the natural becomes supernatural and you cross that bridge. And the framing of that tipping point makes Danny 10 very different from Danny 8 in terms of tone, albeit similar in structure, like I said. Danny 8 was just this unmitigated nightmare, as we were covering in our episode on that chapter, in which Danny's relationship to her environment was thrown into complete chaos and her decision-making in regards to everything from blood magic to Dothraki politics was called into question throughout. Now, Danny 10 still features horror elements and questionable decisions, and we will get into those, but it doesn't have that quite that same sensation of everything falling apart. It feels more harmonious. It feels like everything is, is coming together. All these, these ingredients and all their various forms are coming together. And that's, that's reinforced at every level, not just the successful magic ritual at the end, but the painstaking preparation for it that George lingers on, the Kalasar reforming itself from its shattered chaos behind Danny and her sense of they're more with me now than they ever were with Drogo. And you have, of course, her internal sense of destiny that that's driving her forward. And then you have just the otherworldly perfection of the writing itself. And all these elements come together to express this, like, this beautiful contradiction that everything is changing. This chapter, like, transforms the laws of the universe, even putting aside the politics and Danny's own character arc. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like chaos. It feels natural. It feels like everything is, is fitting snugly into place. And that's a perfect way to express this particular moment in Danny's story, where objectively, she's in trouble and everything has fallen apart. But she doesn't feel that way. And you get that kind of eerie sense of omniscience that pervades the whole chapter. Yeah, it's it's ordered, right? I mean, that's that's what this chapter is. I mean, when you're talking about all the different ways that Danny sets up the funeral pyre itself, everything is very precisely constructed. Everything is weaved together in a certain way. The treasures are put in one spot. Drogo is put in another spot. Oil is poured over top, as we'll get to later on here. It's all ordered. And it's It feels like it's all coming together for Daenerys Targaryen. And it's really interesting that it all comes together too for her given well we'll, we'll get to all, all that momentarily here but it, it is very fascinating to me how the contrast to this is to Danny 8 but if there's also lots of other contrasts too in kind of the setup here I was like I said I read through all of Danny's chapters here so I was reading back in Danny 2 about how at Khal Drogo and Danny's marriages how there was a great big ramp earthen ramp that was erected that elevated Danny up and Drogo up and into this this great place here. Well, again, we have something being erected out from the earth itself and having Drogo placed on top yet again. So you have some sort of, so you have a lot of parallels that George is drawing here. I think that's part of what you're talking about when you're talking about how crisp and how perfect the writing is, is because all of the elements from Danny's story from her first chapter to her ninth chapter are all building into this moment here in her 10th chapter. Like George 
likely had this in mind from the get-go. And the fact he was able to seed all of the parallels leading up to this event is just masterful. And it's masterful because it, it this chapter feels ethereal, right? It feels like it's it's something – it transcends almost writing in a sense. I mean, I, I feels like I'm overpraising George, which I'm not afraid to do. But but it, it's true. I mean, it feels like really – like the the chapter itself feels magical. I think that's a great way to put it. It feels magical itself, even as the magic is occurring within the chapter. I think once again, you hit on the perfect word choice, which is crisp. Like this chapter feels so like perfectly yet delicately constructed. It's like a dessert that melts in your mouth, like vanishes into the ether as soon as you taste it. Whereas Danny ate, and I say this as a compliment, it fits that chapter kind of sits heavier on the tongue. Like it's like a, it's a, it's you feel after reading Danny 8, you feel like a little sick. And I mean that, again, as a compliment. Whereas Danny 10, you read this and you feel like, ah, I feel refreshed. I feel energized. And like, I believe in myself. Like, yeah, again, this sounds kind of corny and ridiculous, but George is clearly writing it to create this emotional reaction. He, he wants to have this, this exquisite sensation of everything snapping into place, just as he wanted in Danny 8, the exquisite sense of everything flying apart. And I think you can see that just in terms of how he handles the, the information within Danny's mind. Because that's like the real kind of structural backbone of this chapter is what Danny is planning versus what George is revealing to us. Because what makes us really different from Danny 8 and 9 is that Danny is now in the driver's seat. She is now the one conducting the blood magic, unlike Mary Ma's door. So now George can play with the information because she's a POV. And he, he makes the brilliant gambit to not let us know right until it happens what Danny is actually doing. And he carefully sprinkles in hints throughout that you can pick up, especially on reread. And you do get a sense even on first read of Danny's up to something that's not coming through quite clearly, but he never spells it out, and that's what makes it so effective. It's very similar to how he handles Dracarys in The Storm of Swords, her attack on the, the Masters of Astapor, in which he never has Danny think directly about her plan, even as she puts it into action and clearly has had it in mind for at least a little while at that point. Yeah, it, it, it's similar, too, to, to Tyrion and the, and, the, and the great chain that he has in the Battle of the Blackwater, too, where... Tyrion is planning something throughout the entire thing. He's having all the iron workers come together in King's Landing, but he never consciously thinks about it in the in the point of view chapter. So when it's sprung in Davos's final chapter in A Clash of Kings, it's like a big surprise. And it shows like there's some forethought and, and action put into there, put into it as well. It's very effective. And you can see George, you know, wanting to spring it on us, but also being a smart enough writer to go like, I have to have a fig leaf. I have to have something that the reader thinks is happening. So they're not, you know, going to go looking for what's really happening. Like with, with Tyrion, there's so many things going on in Tyrion chapters in class that you're constantly distracted. You're never thinking about the wildfire of the chain because all those early Tyrion chapters have like five different subplots going on. In the most exciting way, he's dealing with Littlefinger and Pycelle and Varys and Cersei and, and Jano Slint and Bronn, all these people. So you're, you're not stuck on that one thing. Here you have this, this fig leaf of building Drogo a pyre. Like on the surface, that's all that Danny's doing, right? She's just giving this great tribute to her dead husband in the wake of having to mercy kill him. And that's, a that's you know, you could hinge a chapter on that, right? That, that's an emotional enough set piece. But there's all these hints, there's all these, again, the layers of the dessert, the layers of the, the creme brulee or tiramisu that are going into this chapter that there's more going on. Miriam Azdur immediately intuits, wait, you're taking a lot of care and attention for just a pyre. You're adding a horse and these possessions and all these elements. You're up to something. This is a ritual. But very crucially, Danny silences Mary Ma's door before anyone can get into the specifics. Right. You know, it reminds me of John's third chapter from A Dance of Dragons, where the Queen's men gag Rattleshirt posing as Mance Raider as he cries, I'm not the king, as he's dragged to the to his own funeral pyre itself, uh, technically and 
figuratively. Um, but at the same time, too, I think it's interesting what Miramaz Dor's role in it, because I think you picked up on something that's really fascinating and that she understands what Danny is doing at some level. And she does make a, a statement to the effect of let release me and I'll help you. And you have to imagine like that she realizes that Danny is about to embark on something quite intensively realistic, magical, and that defies logic, but can actually birth something horrible and terrible and wondrous that namely the dragons itself. So you do kind of wonder whether she was like, okay, let me, I, can, I need to like get the fuck out of here and like pretend to help her so I can like fuck her over again and prevent like the birth of the dragons. And then if she's immediately then whipped into silence, which of is, is somewhat satisfying, I have to admit at the same time, it's also horrifying too, at the same time, but you know, it's kind of the same it's kind of a feeling I get a lot of Danny's actions in this chapter. Satisfying yet horrifying at the same time. Exactly. We see that again when Danny gets to Marine and orders all the masters crucified and feels that hot sensation of justice in her belly because of what they did to the slave children, but then goes back later and looks at the remains and is like, oh, this is actually kind of horrifying. And you see that, that same thing here with Danny's relationship to Miriam Mazder. You get why she's doing it. There's a certain catharsis in it, especially as she kind of turns all of Miriam Mazder's words back on herself in that kind of classic comeuppance way. But also a sense of Danny going a little too far and being a little a little too elevated above above the common man and their concerns. But we'll get into, into more of that as we go. <clears throat> Talking about the structure in terms of what George gives away in Danny's thoughts. The first time reader is going to assume that what Danny is doing has something to do with Drogo, not the dragons. Because Drogo is immediately centered in this chapter as the, the focus of the pyre. And it's not till Danny says, bring my eggs, that you realize there's anything else going on here. So maybe Miriam Asdur, until Danny brings out the eggs, is also thinking that Danny is trying to do something with Drogo. And that fits Danny's story so far. So George has that plausible deniability, so to speak, your, your first time through the chapter where you don't realize it's the dragons right away. Jorah has his own assumption. He thinks she's just going to jump up there and burn with Drogo in this, this grand gesture of romantic unity, which she's tempted to do for a second as the fire starts. And that's such a fascinating contrast to me that, she, that that's what Jorah assumes that Danny would do, because that's kind of what he would do. In this situation, right? I mean, he didn't jump onto a pyre after Lanes left him, but he's kind of been self-destructing in a in a long term. He's he's doing the classic like committing a slow suicide via alcoholism when we get to him in a dance with dragons, and much much like Tyrion. So, as as he says in the show, this is this ends up breathing new life into him because that's really what Danny is doing here. He's not em she's not embracing death; she's throwing her arms open to new life and has this kind of messianic consciousness that is is well beyond Jory's understanding of, of romanticism. And yeah, we're talking about the structure of it. Again, Danny 8 has this, this glorious sensation of chaos. This chapter as a whole has this just, this perfect clockwork structure. Like each phase gives way to the next, mirroring this overall process of transformation. You have the sun moving from its zenith at the start of the chapter to the horizon, and then it vanishes. They construct the platform from, quote, sunrise to sunset and ice to fire, hint, hint. Danny says that I was a child yesterday, today I'm a woman, tomorrow I will be old. You got three platforms, three blood riders, three dragons. Three burnt offerings, three handmaids, three gifts. Lots more threes. We get to the House of the Undying, too. We get to a Clash of King, three lies to slay, three fires to light. All so many threes in Danny's chapters. You know, it's interesting, right? I wonder what those threes mean. Is that something, is, is George commuting something about the, communicating something about the universe here? Well, the rule of three, of course, is just a solid literary construct, and we know from comments from George's editor that he loves the, the quote, threefold revelation in terms of how he builds up major twists, major events in the story, you know, establishing things at a kind of subterranean level, then offering a, a bigger hint and a bigger clue, and then the event itself. And we're going to be talking a lot about that as we get to events like the Red Wedding or other big heavily foreshadowed events in the Song of Ice and Fire. But I think what makes it really effective here is that 
I just had this palpable sense on this reread that the 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 three the threefold structures in this chapter they didn't feel like just a literary construct that George was imposing. It felt like like a metaphysical reality. Again, it's like the sun is moving according to Danny's structure and according to what she's planning. Like she's she's tapping into the rhythm of the universe. This is how the world works, not just how this book works. Like she's she's like Neo in the Matrix at this point. She's perceiving the structure of everything for the first time. It has this this exact diamond three structure that she is she's connecting to, like in the House of the Undying, when she kind of is is has this intense trip and she sees to the core of all things as prophetic figures are supposed to do. And so you have these other little hints peppered throughout the chapter that Danny has something major cooking behind the scenes. They thought her mad, Danny realized. Perhaps she was. She would know soon enough. Forgive me, son of my life, she thought. Forgive me for all I have done and all I must do. And then, of course, the big one, bring my eggs, Danny commanded her handmaids. Something in her voice made them run. And as you say, Danny is not the only character he does this with. He pulls that same trick with Tyrion, Vizier the Chain in the Wildfire at the Blackwater to preserve the surprise. But there is a mood I think is very specific to Danny that we see in this chapter. It's that, again, it's a spiritual sense, that the sense of inevitability and destiny, that life itself is guiding Danny. Let's get back to the comparison I was making in Danny 8 as, as being the bad trip. You know, everything spins out of control and gets more horrifying with every breath. Danny 10 is, for the most part, like the model of the good trip, where you. You, you go, ah, oh, I feel perfectly in sense with all the elements of the universe around me. Look at that tree. Look at that sunset. And of course, like, you know, the classic thing with any any such experience is you come down from it and you get back to sobriety and you go back to your normal day. But Danny is, is reaching this elevated plane in a sense she never comes down from it. It's, it's like a, a permanent elevation of, of her existence. And I think George does a good job with that in the structure because Danny not sharing us her thoughts kind of fits that spiritual sense. Like she feels inevitable because she's not telling us her plans. It feels like she's just like an instrument of fate almost. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. I think when you're talking about her tapping into the rhythm of the universe, I think what we're getting here is also, like you said, like she's seeing the matrix for the first time. She's able to get, she is able to perceive things, a metaphysical reality that goes beyond what can be seen physically. And so, but I, I think like something that struck me in this reread is how Danny, how sure Danny is that things are going to work out, which I think is a signal to readers that this isn't just Danny lucking her way into birthing three dragons, that there is a plan at work, and that this wasn't just all of a sudden there's dragons there. Like, wow, Danny, great job. Well, good show. Very well done. But it's, instead, it's very much that she is a figure of destiny and being swept up by the metaphysical forces around her. And I think that tone is amazing. Completely agreed. And that, that gets at the real tension in terms of her character arc in this chapter. Is Danny being swept along by the forces of destiny or is she seizing control of destiny? Is Danny changing the narrative or is this part of the narrative? Is she breaking the wheel or is this just the ultimate example of the wheel? Kind of these questions will dominate her story in various forms as we go forward. And the tone and the structure and the, the fireworks at the end in this chapter, they're all ultimately in service of Danny's arc. And I think this is arguably the best arc closing chapter in the Game of Thrones for how well it takes the tensions and the imagery of all the previous Danny chapters that you were rereading. It ramps them up and then it resolves them perfectly. There's that line, she had sensed the truth of it long ago, Danny thought as she took a step closer to the conflagration, but the brazier had not been hot enough. Referring back to that early chapter to give you the sense of, of a structure, that this of a real arc. This has been coming for Danny the whole time. This is what every chapter in the book with her has been leading toward is this moment. And so you have this question is about whether she's bringing it about or being moved on the chessboard by fate. And I think there are there's plenty in Danny Tan to suggest both perspectives, that both are partially true. And I think they, they both have utility. 
Because on, on the one hand, of course, Dandy is acting with real courage and confronting her inner doubts and fears as she does so. There's this intense exultation for both her and the audience when she realizes she's not afraid as the pyre is burning. Again, it's the parallel to earlier in her story, the first time she rode the silver horse at her wedding and she realized she was unafraid for like the first time in her life she'd forgotten to be afraid. And now here she's... She's like thinking to herself, calling out the door, don't you see, don't you see, the fire is mine. And she has this real sense of, I took this huge risk and it's working. I crossed the abyss and it's working. It's coming together. And, you know, that, that kind of face of inevitability that she's putting on, to a large degree, that's, that's a mask. Like another set of floppy ears, as, as Brown Ben Plum will say when she has to act Giscari in Slaver's Bay. It's a face she wears just like King in the North is a face that Rob has to wear. Like there's that great moment in this chapter when... She's offering her, her young Ka's position as blood riders, and they're all like, no, absolutely not. That's not how this works. And she turns away from their refusal. She does not acknowledge them. And that, she's not doing that because she's genuinely that arrogant and just doesn't care or isn't listening to what they're saying. She does so because she's trying to hold her authority together in a fragile moment. The mother of dragons, the queen of Westeros, is, is a face she has to put on. It's her version of the lord's face because she's feeling the weight of House Targaryen settle on her shoulders. Princess, he began. Why do you call me that? Danny challenged him. My brother Viserys was your king, was he not? He was, my lady. Viserys is dead. I am his heir, the last blood of House Targaryen. Whatever was his is mine now. It's interesting that this conversation is only happening now, because Viserys died 26 chapters ago. Why is it only now coming up explicitly in the narrative? It's for the same reason that Tyrion and Tywin never explicitly talked about Casterly Rock, because the emotional dynamics never brought it to the surface until it finally does in the Storm of Swords. Same thing here. Danny is embracing her status as queen. That's only kind of emotionally possible for her after the crucibles of her last couple chapters. She's thinking to herself, yeah, I'm the queen. I've been through all this hell in the last couple chapters. That has, in a sense, toughened me. And I've... You get a sense that she feels like she's earned her position in Westeros to ascent, like, like all the hardships she's gone through in the last couple chapters. And given that the dragons are House Targaryen's sigil, and that Viserys was literally referring to himself as a dragon, the fact that Danny is bringing the dragons back is in part just this giant overwrought metaphor for Danny's agency and growth, that they represent her self-actualization. She has that great line, children grow and children learn. Yeah, I, I think that's those are all great things. I think another aspect too that's going into why this conversation is occurring now is because Drogo is finally dead. She doesn't have a powerful male figure in her life that she can she has to turn to, that she has to obey. She is the ultimate figure of authority among the her small callousar that's left over there. But I, I think there's another really interesting aspect of this chapter too. This conversation about Viserys does look Interesting, especially when you're looking at the line in parallel to Viserys' ideology, as, as much as he had an ideology, it wasn't really much of a ideologue necessarily, where, you know, she says, I swear it, she said in the common tongue of the seven, of the seven kingdoms that had that by rights were hers. And then you contrast that to what Viserys says in Danny's first chapter, where he says, our land, he called it. The words were like a prayer to him. If he said them enough, the gods were sure to hear. Ours by blood right, taken from us by treachery, by ours still ours forever. You're not steal from the dragon. Oh no, the dragon remembers. And that's to say that behind the dragon magic, behind the revolutionary freed the slaves ideology, the shadow of Viserys is still here. And I know we've talked about them about that in the past in Danny Six specifically. And that isn't getting nipped in the bud as you know, as even as late as Danny's final chapter in, in A Dance of Dragons, which very much parallels this chapter, Viserys appeal Viserys appears as one of the ghosts in Danny's vision quest. So his presence is here and is going to remain in Danny's arc. And I think that's 
interesting when we also consider some of the endgame portions for Daenerys, as we saw in season eight, that Viserys's persona, his ideology, if you want to call it that, it's all still there alongside of these other aspects of her, alongside of the prophetic figure of destiny, alongside of the of the breaker of chains. It's still there, and it's important that that remains there because that does feed into her endgame. It sure does. After all, she names one of her dragons Viserion, and she says something very interesting when she's doing that. She says that, you know, Viserys was cruel and weak, but his dragon will do what he could not. And there's some real ambiguity about what exactly it is she's talking about there. Is she talking about protecting her in the way that Viserys was never able or willing to do? Or is she talking about doing what Viserys wanted, which was coming back to Westeros with fire and blood to take our land, ours by blood right, taken from us by treachery, but ours still, ours forever? That's a real shadow on Danny. You, you brought up her last chapter in Dance with Dragons, a chapter that is so clearly deliberately constructed as an echo to this one. Back on the Dothraki Sea with her dragon going through this painful process of rebirth where even her, even her very body is transformed along with her soul. And Viserys is there waiting for her because he represents her connection, not just to House Targaryen, but this this kind of horrible, wretched side of House Targaryen where they're, they're not even, it's not even just that they're making the deal with the devil, it's that they're not even in control of the forces they unleash and they end up being, being slaves to the fire and blood they thought they could, could control. You see that over and over with House Targaryen. So Viserys represents a connection to that as fate, as inevitability. Remember, her ancestors in her last Danny chapter were urging her on faster and faster to become the dragon, just like Viserys was always saying, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Viserys is, is Danny's connection to that, and that's that definitely is, is there to undercut her more ambitious political moves, because, yeah, to the extent that Viserys had an ideology, he's not the kind of guy who would free slaves or look at Dothraki as people or have any respect for the common folk at all. So that that's definitely a contradiction. And that ties into how, to a certain extent, it feels like Danny is being moved by fate here. I mean, she doesn't really know the details of what she's doing. I mean, that's part just because George, again, keeps her from thinking about it directly. But she gets tremendously lucky here in terms of putting all these elements together. And if her Targaryen blood is the necessary spark, there is an element here that goes beyond her choices. And I think there is a tendency among the fandom, and I include ourselves in this, to devalue sometimes writing that doesn't center around character choices. And I get why, and I think it's a fair argument to make, but sometimes we can miss that there are larger, like, mythological and structural imperatives to establishing that certain things are beyond a character's choice if they're going down a certain road. Like, there is a, a presence of a miraculous force that she interacts with and absorbs here that is beyond her decision-making. And part of becoming a godlike figure, as we see with Bran in seasons 7 and 8, is attaining a consciousness beyond choice. I don't necessarily love how the show executed it, but I think it makes sense for a character like this to be involved in forces that are completely out of their control, and to feel like a puppet of, a puppet of destiny. That, I think that's appropriate in Danny's arc to have this, this, this collision of forces between her control of the world and the world's control of her. I think you can see that in this chapter, the, the rising in Danny's chest, the fusion of her and the fire, the way she feels like she's carrying out this inevitable pre-existing design that she had tapped into a little bit earlier. Even the prose itself sometimes takes on this this weird, spooky, semi-omniscient kind of role instead of the usual third-person limited POV of the series, like this paragraph. When a horse lord dies, his horse is slain with him, so he might ride proud into the nightlands. The bodies are burned beneath the open sky, and the cow rises on his fiery steed to take his place among the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter his star will shine in the darkness. And it's unclear, is that Danny thinking? Because it doesn't say as Danny thought, or Danny remembered how someone once told her. Like, there's none of that in the paragraph. It just feels like it's being dropped in as an, a statement of objective fact, which is very different 
from how the, these chapters are usually written, but it fits so well because it feels like Danny is entering that plane of being able to speak with objective declarative fact about the universe. She's transcending this mortal veil, this mortal veil. She's seeing everything through the, wait for it, God's eye. Oh, the God's eye. Yes. Excellent. I, I think, you know, we have that also parallel in Victorian's uh, Iron Suitor chapter from A Dance of Dragons, where the point of view switches from uh from a point from a Victorian's point of view to the the, the iron captives not seen for the rest of the day, but they heard shrieks and and things like that. Well, I think it's really fascinating to me, and I think this is something that George does really well, and that I do think it moves to the omniscient point of view, like George's perspective, in the same way in this chapter that it does in Victorian's chapter, because I think George doesn't want us. George doesn't want to show. How do I put this? I, I think that George wants to kind of keep the magic and the 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 magical moments a, a little bit separated out from the reader itself so that the reader has to fill in some of the details itself so that our mind has to interact with the narrative in a way that kind of takes us beyond simply the point of view structure. I think the point of view structure is fantastic. It's wonderful. I love it. But at the same time, there are moments like this where and, – and this happens again too where – at the end of the chapter where it does feel a little bit omniscient where Jorah walks out to Danny in the pyre itself and it's told as if like the camera is not centered on Daenerys Targaryen that it's outside of the pyre itself looking in on what's going on here because I think George wants us to marvel at the magic, marvel at the destiny, marvel at how wondrous and terrible this event is at this, all at the same time. You know, similar to Victorian, kind of a lesser extent, having his volcano arm then spring out, out, out of there. But I think it's it's a, it's a good way of writing magic in that it takes us away from the point of view and takes us to an omniscient state. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's all about that that transformative process. And George uses his writing at these specific moments to capture that the transformation that, that Danny is transforming as a person, and she's she's transforming the world magically. So the prose reflects that because it's almost like Danny is breaking the structure of the story in the same way that Makaro and Victorian are. Like it it, it reflects that they're interfering with the metaphysics because they they've interfered with the how that the story itself is being told. It, it gets across that break in reality. And that extends to the politics as well. Not everything in this chapter is about the magical mm -hmm. side of things. Danny 10 is also the chapter in which Danny directly takes charge of what's left of the Kalasar. And this is a huge political moment for her arc. I mean, the Kalasar aren't exactly plot relevant a lot going forward, but they're always there and they're always Danny's core group that prevent her from just being a lone monarch wandering in the wasteland. And she pulls this off through magic like the politics mm. and the magic really come together so well in this chapter like the miracle of dragon birth is what gives her statements credence it's what backs up her revolution that it's it, these bold statements of transformation and equality and freedom they're they're made flesh with the return of the dragons like she's saying i'm going to do these dramatic things and just to prove i can do dramatic things <laughs> look at what i'm bringing back I think that there's something to be said in that I wonder whether originally in the 93 letter, the end of A Game of Thrones was Daenerys gathering a huge Kalasar together and then invading Westeros in the next book. I do wonder whether originally George's idea was that you would have all of Khal Drogo's Kalasar there and having the birth of the dragons take place with the Kalasar there. So then she'd have a big Kalasar that she can gather together. I do wonder if that's a possibility as well. Uh, at the same time, though, I, it's clear that George has an idea of Danny's identity and how they're two parts, sometimes equal, sometimes not so equal, parts of a whole. And, you know, before the magic ritual starts, Daenerys completes what she started back in Danny Seven by claiming those Lazarine and Dothraki individuals to prevent their rape and slaughter back in Danny Seven. So 
Here, though, she's actually freeing them. She frees the slaves. She breaks the chains here way, way, way before Astapor, right? So she's showing herself the Misa, the mother to her people, in parallel to becoming the mother of dragons. And that's essential to Danny's characterization and how George does it. Because Danny's identity struggle, a lot of times in A Dance with Dragons, is found in that she thinks that these two identities are in conflict with each other. She thinks that she can either be the mother of dragons or the Misa. And the fact that she thinks that leads to her chaining the dragons early on in A Dance with Dragons to later riding Drogon at the end of A Dance of Dragons here. But I think what George is showing us in this chapter is that the way forward is to combine those two portions of her identity and push forward and become that figure of destiny as well as be the anti-slavery breaker of chains figure that she does become an Astapor. That's really, really good writing because, I mean, it's just, you're showing you're showing so much of what Danny is as a character here. I mean, granted, it's only, what, maybe a few dozen or so people that she frees here, but that does work as a, what's the word? As a... Microcosm? Microcosm, thank you. That's why I have you as my co-host. <laughs> but, but, but it does work as a microcosm to the greater whole, which she does in A Storm of Swords and onto A Dance of Dragons, and likely onto The Winds of Winter when she goes onto Volantis and other places in Essos before traveling onto Westeros. It's an interesting AU you bring up about Danny doing this before the whole of Drogo's Kalasar, because I think it's so much more effective here that she's doing it with just a few people for a number of reasons. One, it just sets her up as an underdog, so you get the great reversal of then her pulling off the uh, the dragon birth at the end. But it also sets her up as someone who's advocating for underdogs. Like, it's just the people who swore are left and the old and the, the weak and the sick and the frightened as they're described. And she says to these people, you will be the basis for my conquest, for my return home. And you, you will be equal and you will be free and you'll be my brothers and, and sisters while we do it. You get, her, you get a sense of that unity you were talking about and her desire to bring these political and magical strands together with her comparison to Egon the Conqueror. She says, how many had Egon started with? She wondered. It did not matter. And why doesn't it matter? Because she has dragons and she can use dragons to forge this new state, to back up her claims. So these two strands go hand in hand. Again, Danny taking charge in her own right is a radical moment. So she needs to accomplish something radical in order to pull it off. And that starts with Jorah, even before she speaks to the Kalasar. Again, she's she's challenging him to call her a queen properly and pointing out that, hey, you're calling me a princess because you still think of me as kind of young and helpless and someone to protect and and a woman who can't rule Westeros which has never had a ruling queen and you need to change your way of thinking about this Dora and she's saying the same thing to the Kalasar you need to change you need to change your way of thinking and now I'm going to back it up Rob was king in the north last week and now Danny in the privacy of her own thoughts is considering herself the queen of Westeros and the lands the common tongue that are hers by Rey that she thinks to herself telling Jorah to address her as such forces him to take her more seriously basically in, in, in a political sense to actually acknowledge her as his his monarch and his leader and so if that's a successful conversion immediately on the spot, uh, the cause forced Danny to reckon with failure because, again, they refuse her. And they explicitly refuse her on the basis of gender. It's not that they think she's an, an incapable leader, that they've grown to hate her. It's not even that they disapprove of the cultural blood magic stuff in the way that Drogo's blood riders did. It's specifically that they won't serve a woman, that she has a prescribed role that doesn't involve weapons, for example, that she's handing to them. Like, they, like I can't take a weapon from the hand of a woman. That would publicly shame me. And what's like, even what's left of the Kalasar, even the small ragged group, even then the sense in the Kalasar of group judgment and everything being done in the open and these powerful cultural forces of shame, they're still present, even at the small, small group. And again, I just, I gotta, I just love the poise with which Danny accepts their refusals, just very calmly nods and acts like she didn't hear them. And she just keeps going. She's working on a couple different levels because she's trying to get Jorah and her, her cause to 
fit within prescribed social roles, but just kind of apply them to her. Whereas her statement to the Kalasar as a whole is more radical because it's asking consent from everyone and putting them on a level playing field instead of just saying, I'm going to step into this pre-existing power role. Now she's changing the power structures. This is, this is more of the breaking the wheel stuff, I think. And as you say, she's enacting the idea that she was only kind of gesturing at before, like in Danny 7 when she was with the Lazarine town. Of course, that's only possible that she's being able to do this because so few are left, because there's no like strong masculine warrior to take over. They've all run off and fragmented with their own followers. And she does say to, you know, everyone in the remaining Kalasar to the slaves, you feel free to leave. You know, if I'm taking off your collars, you can go if you want. That's a nice gesture. Practically, it doesn't mean much when there's nowhere for them to go and survive. The same thing with the Unsullied. After she frees them in Astapor and says, you feel free to leave, really, there's nowhere for them to go but to stick with her. But the, the, I think the point is, character-wise, is that you can see Danny in this moment trying to reach for acclamation, trying to reach for – to rule through love. I mean, she's she's not trying to impress the Dothraki purely out of fear. She is trying to instill this sense of awe and the, and the sense of, of connection and, and, and belonging and, and get – get consent even through kind of intense brutal magical means it's not purely conquest she wants to earn their support by performing this miracle before their eyes that's what that's what she thinks the takeaway should be from everything she's gone through if that makes sense and that that is at this moment in danny's arc an encouraging sign it's an encouraging sign i think it's also interesting too that as she's just before she embarks on this magical ritual the gifts that she tries to give her cause they're the same gifts that were given to her at her wedding back in Danny 2. So she's trying to work a little bit within cultural norms in Dothraki culture. But at the same time, like the, the guys are just like, I don't know about this. Like, this is the, this is the way we do this. Like in, in the Dothraki custom, you know, we give the gifts to you as the woman, the wife of the call, and you give the gifts to the call. What, what are you doing, Danny? So, I mean... There is definitely an aspect of it where they're not going to take it because she's a woman and because they need to take her back to Vase Dothrak. That's the only reason these guys are left here. They have a duty to return her to Vase Dothrak as a woman, which is part of the gender dynamics that you're talking about here. But there's also that aspect, too, of kind of breaking cultural bounds, which is something that Danny is going to play a lot with when she gets into Karth and into Slaver's Bay and, and Astapor and Marine specifically. And, you know, all of that, though, factors into all of the the magical the magic we're finally up to the point now where the dragons are being born and i, I think you know it's, it's so interesting because as i was reading all of the old danny chapters before getting to this one there's some clear parallels that stood out to me you know danny's prep for the ritual it, it mirrors her preparation for Khal drogo and for her introduction there and danny wanted said the girl brushed her hair until it shone like molten silver while the old woman anointed her with the spice flower perfume of the dothraki plains a dab on each wrist, behind e behind her ears, on the tips of her breasts, and and one last one, cool on her lips, down there between her legs. And then here, Danny Ten, they that is her handmaids scented her with spice flower and cinnamon. A touch on each wrist, behind her ears, on the tips of her milk heavy breasts. The last dab was for her sex. Eerie's finger felt as light and cool as a lover's kiss as it slid softly up between her legs. You know, it's it's it's, it's interesting, right? So I think what George is attempting to parallel here parallel here is Danny's wedding to Khal Drogo. So in Danny 2, when she weds Khal Drogo, we have the dancers and all the dancers dancing around the Danny in this chapter in Danny 10. She thinks of the flames acting as dancers. There's the violence there. Miri Mazdor being burned at the stake. You have the dozen or so Dothraki who are dying at her wedding itself. You have the sexuality too, where Danny kisses Khal Drogo one last time, wants to go to him one last time as well to have sex with him. And ultimately you have the magic. 
And there's a really fascinating, fascinating line here, which Emma and I both hit on in, in our in our notes itself, which Danny thinks this is a wedding too. I love that line because it's, it's so unexpected. Like marriage is not at all the natural reference point, the natural metaphor for what's going on in this chapter. Childbirth is, given that Danny and Drogo are, in a sense, coming together along with their faithful midwife, Mary Mazdur, to produce three scaly little babies. And you got Danny's milk, you know, milk flowing as she skips closer to the flames, and she thinks of herself as the mother of dragons, but she also thinks of herself as the bride of dragons. And that's where, you know, where we get bride of fire for the title of this episode, because it's both. In the same way that Danny thinks of herself as being child and mother and crone, that all of these things are coming together, that all, all artificial boundaries between life and, and death and natural and supernatural and everything is, is, is coming together in this one perfect moment. So she, she has come full circle, as, as those parallels you were pointing out indicate. But the difference is this time she's in control. She is the one reshaping everything from the politics to the magic in her own image rather than being powerlessly shaped by them. And just like her wedding came with corpses, or twould be an especially dull affair, as Illyria <laughs> says, this event is this, this powerful fusion of life and death. It starts as a wake and ends as a birth. It starts with a Kalasar and collapse and ends with one having embraced this new direction. You know, Danny's is giving with one hand and taking with the other, as so many great mythological figures do. There's immense danger in what she's doing, but also powerful beauty, which goes hand in hand with how George describes war, both within the text and in his own interviews. And you have that, that great line, the breaking of the world, to describe uh, the birthing of the third dragon egg. And that could be taken to mean the end of the old world or the start of the new world or both. It's both. Now it begins versus now it ends, as we talked about in our episode on Eddard 10 with the Tower of Joy fever dream. It's always both. You know, the, the world is always collapsing and being remade. And the comparison point everyone kind of reaches for with this is uh, the creation of nuclear weapons. And people have compared it to the Manhattan Project and the, uh, the, the quoting of I am become death from Oppenheimer, this kind of sense of religious terror when he, he first when the, the scientists first saw what they had created. And that's that's definitely a strong reference point. But I also, when I was reading this chapter, I, I don't know, I was thinking about it. It's, it's like the Big Bang. I was thinking about how the universe, for all we know, might have kind of sprung into being, stretched and collapsed many times over by now. And maybe we're just in the upteenth iteration of the Big Bang and then and the spreading of matter throughout the universe. And Danny is like cutting to the core of that, the, the, the very heart of creation itself, in which everything is made and unmade. To, to try to bring something back. And it works. It works. And that, that really throws her whole line to Miriam Mazdur about is it so far from madness to wisdom into sharp relief. I mean, Danny, as the chapter goes along, is, is doing these things that objectively seem crazy. And you have all these mutters and stares from the outside. And I'm sure the same way Arian Brightflame or Danny's own father, Eris, were received. And yet, Danny emerges unburnt, having transformed dead stone into living beings. This, this, this unbelievable awe-inspiring religious miracle. She changes what is possible. And our, our definitions of sane and insane are kind of rooted in this our sense of understanding what's possible. And we, we deem people insane when they think things are possible that are not to an extreme degree. So the fact that Danny is changing what is possible maybe should change our definitions of what a sane or insane person looks like. <laughs> we might think Danny is a crazy person to try to bring dragons back right before she does it. So when she does it, we have to rethink things. And so this is George's ultimate magical moment in the series in which the, the tangible and intangible forces are coming together to produce something truly spectacular that reshapes both the big picture and the character's arc. And returning to it, you can see echoes of it in all the magical moments to come. Melisandre birthing shadow babies, the resurrection of the Riverlands, they all in some ways feel like echoes and versions of this. And there's something real bittersweet about that in that this is the standard they're all reaching for. 
but none of them can match. Melisandre's shadow babies and Barrett coming back from the dead, they all feel kind of corrupted and worn and broken in a way that that Danny's, Danny's dragons do. Like, this feels like the perfection and everything else feels like pale limitations. This is the star you try to grasp, overreach, and fall. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. I, that, really hard to top that one, man. Um, no, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, 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 it's right. I mean, think like um, when you're talking about like the rational and the irrational, the sane and the insane, you know, we, we, is it so far from madness to wisdom? I, I think, you know, we, we hit on the fact that this is a chapter which Danny is embracing the metaphysical side that is tapping into something that goes beyond the simple reason of the natural world, right? She's going into the unnatural to the ethereal, so to speak. And yeah, that, that really, that question of how much farther is it from magic, from wisdom to, to madness speaks a lot to events that are going on in this chapter, but also speaks to Danny's identity as a whole. And I don't, we're going to avoid the is Danny mad argument, I think, here for right now. We'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about that later on. But I, but I think when we look at it from a perspective of like the natural, like the super, like the, like the Maester Lewin perspective, the kind of the super rational perspective, we'd be like, yes, this is an obviously insane mad thing that Danny is doing. But we're in a universe where magic does exist. We are in a universe that we know that the dead come back to life, that we know that there are events and beings that are outside of the natural and rational forces in this world. So Danny embracing that perspective that things, it could be mad or it could be wisdom speaks to that. And I think speaking to that does it in such a way that, you know, feeds a lot of stupid fan debate, but also feeds a lot of really interesting discussion about what is a rational person to do when they see something like the birth of dragons, when Davos sees the birth of shadow babies, it's, really defies logic, defies understanding, and defies any, you know, identity of whether it's mad or whether it's rational. And I think that's really, really good. And it does set a pattern for things to come. And sets a pattern for Danny too. I mean, something I love about how George handles magic is these moments of apotheosis, they tend to be temporary. Like just because you can access this astral plane doesn't mean you've solved all your problems. Or just said he doesn't like it when magic is used as a problem-solving shortcut in fantasy. And they, they in, the, in A Song of Ice and Fire, it tends to cause more complications. Like I was saying about this kind of setting a standard that every other magical act in the story is trying to reach, Danny too is always going to try to live up to this because this is the one moment when her life perfectly works. This is the one moment when she feels at home, at home with her new children. And she's always going to be trying to recreate this, like with the House of the Undying and the Dracarys moment and her rebirth at the end of A Dance with Dragons. It's all trying to get back here and it'll never be the same again. It'll 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 never be like that one moment when she she broke through the firmament and forced the universe to make sense. It'll never be like this. And it's 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 really bittersweet that even as she's pulled off this incredible miracle and she's she's brought these beings back, it's like, well, but are dragons any replacement for human children? Like are they are they really filling the hole that Rago left behind? Is is it really enough like we we talked when we were talking with Eliana about about the fate of Rago and how he kind of sort of looked like a dragon, and this now is that logic is being carried through to the full extent that Danny has replaced the possibility of human children with these dragon children. As miraculous and awe-inspiring as that act is, there's also something deeply unsettling about it that she has, in a sense, sacrificed her humanity, and that this is now the only family she feels like she can ever have. And there's something very sad about that, even as it's very inspiring and exciting on another level. Agreed there, man. Like, yeah, then Danny 10 
Daenerys thinks about Rego receding from her, and that's so sad, right? And, and that's and like we said, Danny Nine is such a bummer of a chapter, but those small moments too really kind of feed into that bummer of a chapter. Do does do dragons replace the receding memory of Rego? Yes, no, maybe, possibly. <laughs> it's really she tries to make them do it, but I think you can see when you get to the dragons literally eating children. That it's not working. It's not quite filling the hole left behind. It's not quite creating the home with the red door she wants to have. There's the bittersweet contradiction between how modest Danny's ends are when you really break it down. She just wants to be at home and how kind of grotesque and oversized her means become. And that, that contradiction, you can already already see it here. What she wants is so really so simple. And she, she ends up trying to take down the fire of the gods itself to get it. And that's I think that's, that's what makes her arc. So over the top, but so grounded is this, this the constant sense of her, her desires informing these, these crazy religious experiences. So I think that about sums up our discussion on the chapter itself. Moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork. Daenerys 10 is, as we've said a couple times, the last chapter in A Game of Thrones. And it sets a pattern in which George ends each book with magical apotheosis of some form. Danny brings back the dragons in A Game of Thrones. Bran finally opens his third eye at the end of A Clash of Kings. Catelyn returns as Lady Stoneheart at the end of A Storm of Swords. At the end of A Feast for Crows, Sam arrives in Old Town and sees a bunch of other, bunch of magical elements to play, including the glass candles burning again at the very end. I think it's interesting that the only exception to this rule is A Dance with Dragons, and that ends with Kevon's holy secular epilogue in King's Landing. I'm sure that is in part a product of the intensely a torturous writing process for feast and dance, but I'm curious to th- if you think the equivalent of the magical book-ending chapter in Dance's case would have been the the brand chapter that George reportedly cut to Winds of Winter, and what do you think about how that might have played out as the last chapter in Dance? Yeah, that's it's a that's a fascinating question. I think you know it would have been interesting to have that chapter be the final chapter in Dance. I, I think if I remember correctly, that when um, that individual went to the Cushing Library back in 2015. That it was originally placed like immediately after John's assassination chapter. So we would have gotten Bran's perspective immediately after. And it would have been really fascinating to see Bran potentially seeing that. I think um, that would have been really, really cool. But I, I think it absolutely could have been the chapter which defines another epoch of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire. I also think it's possible that chapter would have revealed Jojen Paste, you know, because I think it's been widely theorized and I think at some level accepted by the book fandom, because this wasn't a, a an aspect that the show really went into, that Jojen is paced and has been consumed by Brand in order to open his third eye and be, have him, he already has third eye open, in order for him to become the last green seer, which is something that George has talked about. I think, you know, I, I really think that Danny's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, it's not the same sort of uh, magical apotheosis as you put so well, but I think it does get into the magical side of it and that it reveals Danny's magical elements much more it reveals it again and almost it's almost like a a rebirth of this side that we see here at the end of this chapter in a game of thrones at the end of Danny's arc in a game of thrones that she's actually the prophesied prophetic figure of destiny and that destiny is can go in a, in a multitude of ways here at the end of a game of thrones right i think like it's really cool how this chapter ends because you're like Okay, so now she has three dragons. Where does she go from here? And then we get into Clash of Kings and Karth, which <sighs> long Lindsay LSI on that one, but that's okay. We'll get to that one in just just a few months. But at the same time, though, having Danny having a rebirth of her magical side, having not her third eye open, but having her 
magical portion restore because you know a, a dance with dragons very much deals with her identity right and whether she's going to be the dragon or going to be the mice or the mother figure danny 10 of a dance with dragons kind of settles that question quite conclusively for the end of a dance of dragons that she's no longer going to be playing the politics of marine she's no longer going to be embracing Giscari culture she is the dragon again she is becoming you know, the Targaryen through and through. So I think it's a rebirth of her magical side, her rebirth of her, her prophesied figure of destiny. But I do think that Bran chapter would have been nice. Having another aspect of magic being revealed to the reader would have been really cool. But so I guess we'll find out in the Winds of Winter, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point that Danny Ten in A Dance with Dragons, even if it's not technically another magical apotheosis chapter, it feels like one. Just like the imagery and structure of it all and the fact that Danny's so isolated, it feels very abstract and very internal. And there's you, yeah, you have her images and so well, it, it's, so it's not an exact equivalent. It does feel like a rough equivalent. And I agree that Jojit Pace was probably on the table to be revealed in that chapter because it feels like – that almost feels like the natural climax of all the stuff about cannibalism and dance – it feels like it might have been kind of building toward the Jojen paste reveal at the, at the end. So we also have um, something interesting in this chapter. There's this quote in Danny 10, which goes, So many bells, gold and silver and bronze. Bells so his enemies would hear him coming and grow weak with fear. Man, Emmett, I'm trying to remember. Was there something about bells in Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 5, maybe? Was that episode called The Bells, maybe? <laughs> Maybe that's supposed to stand out, this line from Danny Ten now that we have the end game. Is that possible? Might be possible. She's of course referring to Drogo's bells here, and given the strong sense at the end of Game of Thrones that Danny is in a sense taking over for Drogo, taking over for Rago and Rhaegar and her father and Viserys and all these other people who thought they were the main figures of prophetic destiny, she's taking over for them. So it would fit well if she thinks about Drogo's bells causing her, his enemies to grow weak with fear, if it's actually going to be about the bells causing her enemies to grow weak with fear. As we were saying during season eight, it does seem quite possible that this is tied in with John Connington as well, because his backstory and his relationship to the bells is also very strongly established in A Dance with Dragons. Maybe the bells in King's Landing are rung as part of a, a Danny Aegon showdown, and Danny and John Connington both react to it in a way. And of course, the show not having the young Griff plot just stuck with the Danny reaction. But yeah, that definitely leapt out on reread after season eight. I think any anytime we see we see bells going forward in the Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> it's going to reach up and slap us all in the face. Yeah, I think it's yeah. I, I again, we we don't know precisely how the plotting is going to go in the books itself. But I do think some of these references to Bell, specifically Danny's chapters, will be keeping a close eye on going forward. I know our friends of the History of Westeros podcast have, uh, they were, I think they were the first ones I, I saw that talked about this one, maybe on Twitter, or maybe in another, one of the reviews for Game of Thrones season eight itself. But yeah, it does feel like it was very intentional by George to put in there possibly as a, as a means of signaling some endgame stuff in, in Danny's arc in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. I, I think, you know, and we will talk about this next week a lot, is that we, we do have a, a whole section dedicated to endgame stuff that it hap that we see in A Game of Thrones, the foreshadowing that George integrates into the first book that will likely be filtering into events that happen in A Dream of Spring. I think the Bell's is one of those things that is likely in my mind to be one of the aspects that George inputted specifically into a Game of Thrones to have endgame ramifications. Well said, sir. Yeah, we're obviously going to have a, a great time looking back on, on the whole of the first book now that we come after it, come to it after not only four other books, but but uh, Game of Thrones, the TV show. 
And that's that's definitely one aspect in these Danny chapters is the kind of the pulse with dread at where her story might be going. Both awe and dread. Again, both sides of the coin that the gods flip whenever Targaryen comes up. Oh, yes, indeed. And speaking of that awe and dread, transitioning to our final three discussion discussion. Oh, man, it's so, so sad. And it's bittersweet, I think, is probably the way that George would want us to talk about this. Our final theory discussion for Game of Thrones is talk, is to kind of talk about the magic itself in this chapter. In a 99 web chat, 1999, that is, yes, kids, the internet existed back in the 1990s. I think I was uh, on AOL or AIM at that time, AIM back in the day. George R. Martin was asked a question by someone named Granny, who said, do Targaryens become immune to fire once they, quote, bond? To their dragons. And George R. R. Martin responds, Granny, <laughs> Granny, thanks for asking that. It gives me a chance to clear up a common mis- misconception. Targaryens are not immune to fire, all caps with an exclamation point. And this is the important part for this discussion. The birth of Danny's dragons was unique, magical, wondrous, a miracle. She is called the unburnt because she walked into the flames and lived. But her brother sure as hell wasn't immune to that molten gold. So that's George's characterization of the event, but this chapter and the magic that occurs in, towards the end of it, it, it's so weird, like I talked about in the introduction, it has me really wanting to know more. As with Miri's ritual, George is keeping the magic occult and mysterious so as to maintain the intrigue, but he's also writing it in such a tantalizing fashion that you can't help but ask, what really happened here? He's giving you this series of clues It seems like enough for you to solve the mystery, but also giving you the sense that the mystery is unsolvable. Yeah, I I agree that it feels that there's a lot of clues that have been seeded in the narrative, but it's also there's things that are outside of what's rational, what's naturalistic. But Emma, do you remember when we did Danny 8? Remember that chapter? And I pose as the annoying interloper regarding all the magic we saw there and how I asked like 10,000 questions to you to answer them all. I'm always ready for you to be annoying, Jeff. Yeah, bring it on. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Okay, so my first question. How do the quantifiable elements, that is Drogo, Miri, the fire, the eggs, the comet, how do they intersect with the purely miraculous in this chapter? I think it's important to compare what Danny does here with the failed attempts to bring back dragons or transform into a dragons in the Targaryen past. You saw Arian bright flame drink wildfire that tried to try to turn himself into a dragon. Aerys thought the funeral pyre of King's Landing would work. But the fact that George describes this as this unique one-off miraculous event suggests that none of those events could ever work and that... On the one hand, you have all these these tantalizing elements put in place that, that Danny's working not just with the horse, but also Drogo's body and also Miri Mazdur and also this big fire and also she waits till the comet is there. But uh, the way George talks about it, it's it's like there's there, 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 there's something unique that, that no one else could possibly recreate. So maybe maybe listing these elements is there not just to, as I said earlier, establish the kind of setting in our mind, but they're almost as as a red herring to make like both the audience and the characters think that this is something you can understand and recreate even when you can't. Yeah. So it's like all, it's like you have like the perfect recipe that George kind of sets up there, but ultimately that doesn't matter because this is just a one-time magical miraculous event and wondrous and all this, the adjectives that George used to describe um, the, the magic itself. I, I think like you were saying when, when kind of introducing the topic, I think like you have a lot of clues there, but you have to wonder how much of those clues are the false clues leading to a false trail and how much of it are things that we can, act, that actually do lead to the event itself. Okay. Question two, could anyone other than Danny have pulled this off? And I think you did sort of answer this, but I'm going to say probably not because those characters who think that they can have this perfect list of, of ways to access 
the the sublime and mess with metaphysics they tend to be shown as wrong or at least making bad deals with the devil in in the in order to get there a character like melisandre or on the complete darker end of the spectrum euron generally i think george is coming down to the idea that at a meta level you shouldn't write magic in a way that's just easily explained and sorts into perfect mana classes for your audience and in universe any character who thinks that they can do that with magical and religious forces is dangerous and is going to be shown shown to be ultimately wrong. So I, I I don't I don't think anyone could pull off what Danny pulled off because it is it is supposed to be this unique coming together of forces and elements and kind of everything has to be there. So I think Danny herself is supposed to be this sort of X factor that no one else has access to, and that's why you get the structure of the story later on in Feast and Dance, where everyone who wants to you know, right the wrongs of the world or, or take over or do something crazy magical, they all want Danny. Danny's just like the, the missing piece in all their different plans. In the similar sense, Danny was what was what was missing uh, from all these earlier attempts by the Targaryens to bring the dragons back. Now, what exactly does that mean? What is it about Danny that makes her special? That is something that George, I think, correctly leaves more ambiguous. But I, I think, again, he gets it across in in the tone of this chapter that, that Danny is, is feeling... Is feeling that that sense that I am the missing ingredient. I am I am what was absent from the world, and now and now I am bringing it back. So I I I I don't have really a, a rational response as to why Danny is the only person who could pull that off. But I, I feel that's that sensation from this chapter. You know, I wonder if there's a parallel with Bran Stark as the last Green Seer, where you have him talking about the the bones of a thousand dreamers before him and how you know you have one in ten thousand that is a that can skin change and one in ten thousand more who is a green seer and how special that makes brand here and you don't get the sense that there's anything particularly special about brand other than he has a stark blood but so do many many other people in the narrative itself including certain point of view characters and i, I kind of wonder whether that's Sort of George, like you were saying, leaving a, a bit of ambiguity there in having why Danny was the was the chosen one to bring the dragons back, and why Bran is the chosen one to breathe the fight to be the last Green Seer. I do think that's a potential parallel that George is going to be playing with, probably even more in the Winds of Winter as as Bran assumes his powers and as Danny reclaims hers. I love that sense of yeah, all these skeletons that went before you and all the previous quests that failed. I think that's an important part of what George is doing with both Danny and Bran's characters is. The, that only death can pay for life. That e- even if Danny was fated to have this miraculous event, that you have all these other uh, Targaryens and people in her family who were sacrificed a- a- as part of that process. And while George doesn't draw a direct link, you do get the sense that you know there's a reason that Danny names her dragons <laughs> after the the people she's lost. That they are in a sense replacing them, and that maybe at some level Danny needed to have these losses before the universe would let her have the dragons. Like maybe. The problem with Eris and Arian, Bright Flame, and all those guys was they weren't willing to sacrifice right. They weren't willing to do mm-hmm. it in a really self self sacrificial fashion in in the right way. And maybe Danny is 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 tapping to that more effectively than they did. That's a really good point. I like that a lot. Okay, next question: Was the birthing of dragons was that Danny's plan from the outset? And this is going to be we we did kind of address this in the main cast itself, but I figure I'll ask it again. How did she come by this plan? I mean, there's no. I, I guess I'll I'll add a little bit of more information. So, in reading all of Danny's chapters before coming on to reading this one and talking about this one, I think we have a lot of sense that Danny feels that she's special. She has the dragon dreams that start in her second chapter in a Game of Thrones that do proceed forward after that in Danny three. 
Danny four, I think Danny six, I want to say not Danny six, Danny six was not dragon dream. There are several dragon dreams that come there, but we also have Danny's sense that she just needs to put the dragons into a fire right into the fire of the brazier. She talks about that in this chapter. Do you get the sense that Danny is finally realizing that there is a specific plan that she, or a specific plan or things that she needs to do in order to bring the dragons to being, or was this just the unnatural ethereal world interacting with the physical one and allowing and allowing Danny to come by this plan. Yeah, there's a number of, of elements at work here. And this again gets at how effective a decision it is on George's part to not spell out Danny's plan in detail in her mind, because at some level you get the sense that she has planned this out completely, but that she is is terrified that if she thinks it to herself consciously it won't work. Like, you know, how Arya is kind of terrified as she gets close to the twins that if she gets too hopeful about reuniting with her family, it won't happen. Like, Danny is kind of almost flinching away from it mentally because it's too terrifying and huge and kind of ridiculous an idea to think of. And so she's she's getting that feeling of it coming almost from elsewhere, like when she was interacting with her dragon eggs and her dragon dreams. And you sense that tension of her trying to understand, is this something that's happening to me or is this something that's coming from within me? And uh, in, in this chapter, she's she's fully and finally embraced the idea that it's coming from within me. But I think it's that's only possible because she's seen blood magic at work, right? Like she would never have come to this conclusion if she never met Miriam Mazdur, if she never saw shadows dancing on the blood spattered sand silk. Like that stuff also had a huge influence on why she thinks this is possible, not just her dragon dreams. I, I do wonder whether Danny found some strength in Miriam Mazdor looking kind of terrified and that she was like – Actually, this seems like it might work because the person who has been proved to be the most magical being that I've encountered so far in the narrative seems really freaked the fuck out by what I'm doing. So I must be on the right path, but she doesn't want to consciously think that because, like you said, that Arya parallel is a really, really good one. Okay, next question. So as Danny is looking into the fire itself and the pyre, she sees a bunch of things. She sees a yellow sorcerer, crimson fire lions, great yellow serpents, unicorns, fish, foxes, monsters, wolves, bright birds, flowering trees – and a horse, which she assumes is the one that's going to carry Drogon up into the, the Nightlands itself. There's been a lot of thought in the fandom that I've seen that these different elements represent different houses in Westeros, but I don't find that necessarily very convincing, necessarily. I mean, I can see the argument for it, but I don't see how, like, Fox's why House Florent would have any really meaning to Daenerys Targaryen besides that, oh, this is a house that I must rule one day. So do you think there's something going on with the different things that she's seeing or what they might represent in the narrative? Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a, a deeper idea at work here. And in part, you can pick up out these individual images and assign meaning to them, like Fox is standing in for House Florence or the horse standing in for Danny's relationship to Drogo and the Dothraki as a whole. It's also a connection to like the, the classic pale horse of the apocalypse that we also see in season eight, episode five of Game of Thrones at the very end. I think George is going for some connections there, but I think my, my overall take on that passage, and I really love it, it's so vivid and beautiful, is that, again, it feels like Danny is cutting to the core of creation. Like she's seeing the, the, the natural elements of the world at their moment of, exist, moment of coming into existence, like the, the, the DNA building blocks of the universe. And it's the, the building blocks of the genre as well. One of my favorite moments in Danny's stories in The House of the Undying when she gets to the the heart of that mansion and she sees what George describes wonderfully as a splendor of wizards, just a bunch of beautiful people sitting around with their nice spangly pointy triangle wizard hats. And it's like the, the most kind of trite and stereotypical trope George's ever uses in the series <laughs> because he's using it to make a point that that's kind of a, a shield that, that covers up what the undying are really like. And mm. In the same way, I think George, George is showing that Danny 
is 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 cutting to the very core of those those creative elements and seeing how the the world comes together like i love that almost everything she sees is a natural image of 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 you know animals and flowering trees and and so forth but except for one the sorcerer a yellow sorcerer an image of a, of a of a human so maybe what she's seeing there is a reflection of what she's doing you have this natural world and then the sorcerer the one human who's kind of inter, an interloper in that world does that mean, what do you think i like that i like that a lot of her of seeing herself there because i mean there's that parallel to Danny Nine when she is in her dream and she goes to what she thinks is Rhaegar Targaryen in his black armor and she takes the visor back and it's actually her because George is doing some of the the Empire Strikes Back pastiche. Um, but what you know, it's really cool. I, I think that her being the Yellow Sorcerer makes a lot of sense, and that I really like your explanation too of all, all the natural elements how Danny is seeing kind of the foundations of the world and the universe that are intermingling with the the, the magical side. That I think it's really really cool. Okay. Final question. I promise it's my final one for those who, for you, Em, and for those of you who are listening who are annoyed by all my annoying questions. The major theory that I've seen out there, and this is one that I've kind of gone back and forth on personally for myself, so I wanted to get your opinion because it'll be the one that I'll adopt going forward, uh, is that Miri Mazdor, it's clear that she knows that something's up, she suspects something is up, and that she's trying to prevent it from happening by volunteering herself to, oh, I'll come and aid you and stuff like that, which of course she was most likely not planning on doing. But the major theory out there is that Miri Mazdor, as the fires are being lit and why she seems so kind of blasé about being staked to the ground and fires looking around her, was that she had some sort of protection, a spell that she was attempting to sing against the flames. And then that spell didn't work and sort of ricocheted onto Daenerys Targaryen that protected her from the flames. So this theory, I think, is really interesting. But given the context of all we've talked about in this chapter and in this analysis I don't know if it's true. Do you think this is true potentially or something that George might be working with here? Is that the answer to the question of how Danny survives the flames? I definitely like it. It fits with the idea of sorcery being a sword without a hilt and attempts to use magic kind of backfiring that Mary Mazdur thinks she can save herself, but not only does it fail, but she ends up saving the person who's burning her alive, end up saving <laughs> Danny. That fits that overall theme very well. It makes sense of her statement that Danny won't hear her scream. Maybe that's not just a statement of bravado. Maybe that's Miri Mazdur literally thinking, I'm going to protect myself from the flames. So, of course, you're not going to hear me scream. I I don't think it's – I don't think we should seize on it as the silver bullet or as the clear literal explanation for everything that's happening because then you still have the question of, okay, why didn't this, why did the spell not work though? Why did she fail? Why did it ricochet onto Danny? And so, again, you come back to this – the irreducible presence of Daenerys herself as as the Rosetta Stone for this, this whole event and that – all kind of all plans go wrong when they touch Danny, if that makes sense. All these narratives insist they have a place to her, but they all go wrong once they actually come into contact with her. And I think you can see that that's starting here with with Miri Mazdur, that she's making one more attempt to make the situation work the way she wants it to, and to have Danny work the way she wants it to, and it it, it fails one more time. And so I, I think that. You know, I, when I, I've been talking a bunch about how, you know, there's there's irreducible aspects and things you can't know. And I, I know that can feel like a kind of obnoxious or pretentious, like I'm just like <laughs> explaining away nothing. But like the the, the, the point I want to make and the, my like, overall takeaway from this chapter is that Danny herself now feels like a force you take into account like nature, like the, the movements of the moon and the stars and, and the, the forces of wind and fire and blood like Danny for just a second, Danny herself feels like she's she is operating on that level. So that 
the explanation for things is not is in this chapter is not just Danny interacting with elements. It's Danny herself. Danny is this is force that creates miracles sheerly through being, and there's no way to explain it other than that's what she is. And there's there's something so revelatory and powerful about that. But I think it, it works so effectively because George snatches it away. Like that's how you you end the book with this, and you you walk away like you're walking on air. You've just seen a miracle. You're transformed the way Jorah says he is. And then at the beginning of the next book, you crash right back down in the muck with Stannis <laughs> on Dragonstone, back with with desperation and doubt and anger and resentment and fear. And the dragons are just back to being stone statues. They're not miracles anymore. So I think as powerful as Danny Ten is in isolation. It gains all the more power and context when you realize, as I said, that this is a standard that everyone is going to keep trying and failing to reach for. Like I said at the, in my intro, magic is cool when it's unexplainable, right? It's when you don't have a set step-by-step instruction manual that allows the reader to understand the magic. I think it makes it unexpected and cool. And I think that's really, really cool in Martin's world that it is so unexpected and so weird, right? And so unattainable in terms of our human mind and our ability to comprehend it. I think it's really, really awesome that George does that. And I really also think it's cool too that you know, it's it's not like all of a sudden that, you know, some person could snap their fingers and all of a sudden they have an army at their back and stuff like that because George has talked about that too. Like, well, you know, in, in fantasy fiction, you know, why would you ever like fight against the wizards when they can like kind of wave their magic wand around and create an army out of, out of nothing? I think that George does a really good job in keeping it a low magic series and allowing the magic to kind of operate in the fringes, starting to filter into the center, but at the same time, keeping it a little bit restrained, a little bit limited and allowing the world to really feel, allowing magic to breathe in this world that feels realistic which is a weird way of putting it but feel real but but feel natural even though it's an unnatural force in a world like westeros in a world like essos in a world of ice and fire i think it's really really cool so i I really appreciate you answering all my questions I, i i am well satisfied with all your answers my my meal has been consumed and enjoyed (laughs) yeah and, and regardless of what you think the answer to any of these questions is this chapter is just so enjoyable to read. It's just so vivid and beautiful, and the the spectacle it creates and the sensation it stirs within you are worthy and valid, no matter what where you come down on the specifics of what happened here. What what matters is the sensation leaves you with. And that last paragraph that I read in your synopsis, it just it still it still moves me. Still, still the music of dragons is still such this this transcendental haunting thing that I just shiver and smile at and I'll never get over. And the fact that the fact that it still moves me means I'll never get over it. And I'm so glad about that. <laughs> I am so glad about that too. And I sadly have to say, I think that about wraps us up for the Game of Thrones Sedaris 10 and Game of Thrones itself. It's um bittersweet, not sad, bittersweet. That's where I'm looking for. Um, you know, it's, we usually say thanks for listening, rate review us, all those sorts of things. But I just want to say thank you to Emmett. Thank you for, for doing this with me. It's, it's a pleasure becoming your, your friend in the past 19 months of doing this. It's a pleasure sharing this experience of going through our favorite series of books together. And, you know, it, it, it means a lot that, you know, you would undertake this huge project. I mean, it's you guys probably out there who are listening don't know the amount of work that, you know, Emmett does for this this podcast. I think every week, he you know, you, you throw your heart, soul, mind and strength into into this project. I mean, the uh, I, I watch as the notes kind of come in day to day. You know, I write my s- silly synopsis and then I get to kind of sit back and, you know, and 
and to enjoy my life and image kind of you, you throw yourself into this so i really appreciate that more than that i, re- I appreciate and, and uh, i appreciate your friendship i love you man i love you too jeff and thank you for the the work you put into this you put an immense amount of, of work into it every week and it was it was your idea and I've, I've never rarely been more flattered than when you when you came to me and wanted to do this project with me and i've had a, a great time with you and we, we really have only just begun we'll do a lot more looking back on what we've done so far when we get to our, our patreon episode looking back at the game of thrones but now I just I look forward with, with such excitement. I, I, I was always so looking forward to getting here. So thank you again, sir. Thanks to everyone for listening. Obviously, as always, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play and etc. wherever you find our fine podcast. Check out our Patreon if you've not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for those of you who are patrons at our $5 above level, which will be looking back on a Game of Thrones. And then two weeks after that, we will return to our regular cast with the prologue to A Clash of Kings. I'm so excited to do that. At last, he is here. Status! 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 Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone, and by the grace of God's rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Thank you guys also as well for, for listening to us and spending, you know, your your free time listening to this podcast, you know, 72 episodes of the Game of Thrones, all of our various other episodes we did for Game of Thrones the show, our patrons who are listening to our, our I guess, 18 episodes after this upcoming one that's coming out. Thank you guys for your ears, your support, your kind words. Thank you for all the emails, the messages we receive. It, 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 it genuinely means a lot to, to both of us that you guys care about the podcast, but also care about us and your passion about the series. And, you know, ultimately, thank you to George R. Martin for, for writing this great series of books that we've, we've enjoyed, especially this first one. Thank you to George, as always. Thanks to everyone who has been with us through A Game of Thrones, and we will see you in A Clash of Kings.